0: Before today's guest, I'd like to thank everyone who participated in the podcast event last week. It was a big success, and we'll probably do more events like it in the future. Today's guest is Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and a Senior Faculty Fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. He's also a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He's the author of 15 books, including The Pity of War, The House of Rothschild, Empire, Civilization, and Kissinger, The Idealist, which won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize. He's an award-winning filmmaker as well, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series The Ascent of Money. In addition to writing a regular column for Bloomberg, he's the founder and managing director of Greenmantle, LLC. Neil and I talk about the concept of counterfactual history, we talk about Trump's response to COVID-19, how our political culture might look different if Hillary were elected, and we talk about the deteriorating relationship between the U.S. and China, and the prospect of a second cold war. This conversation happened way back on September 1st, so if you're wondering why we don't talk about the first debate, or Trump having COVID, that's why. And also, Just a warning, this episode ends very abruptly because Neil had difficulty with his Wi-Fi towards the end and there was nothing we could do about that. So without further ado, Neil Ferguson. Neil, thanks so much for coming on my podcast.
1: It's a pleasure. It's an honor.
0: Well, I uh, I think because of... The moment we're in, we're going to spend most of the time talking about current events and politics. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question that I have to imagine you haven't been asked in probably a while, which is virtual history. Mm. This is a a book you wrote how many years ago? Or a book you edited, rather?
1: Well, it was edited. I wrote quite a lot of it, but it's a collection of, of essays. Uh, must have been 1990s. Uh, mid-90s, I think it was published. So practically the Stone Age. Uh, this, was, this was born of a sense that historians were not thinking clearly enough about what-if questions. The fancy term is counterfactuals. And I wanted to get a group of of historians to address what seemed to me like good counterfactual questions in as rigorous a way as possible. I wrote a long, um, rather rambling introduction where I spelt out my philosophical conviction that you have to make counterfactuals explicit. They're implicit in a lot of causal statements about the past, but you kind of need to make them explicit to do your job thoroughly. This is not at all a consensus position amongst professional historians. In fact, it's regarded uh, by most professional historians as a sort of uh, frivolity uh, or, or at least an illegitimate activity. But I actually think that's wrong. And that the only way you can make coherent arguments about history is to make your counterfactuals explicit. And that's what the book attempted to do.
0: Yeah. So we're, we're, we're thinking here of uh, examples like what would have happened if John
1: Wilkes Booth had missed lincoln right right although that's not one of the ones in in the book the the book has a couple of american chapters a brilliant one by jonathan clark on the american revolution and uh i wrote a a what if britain stayed out of 1914 uh stayed out of world war one essay there's there's a kind of um challenge when you're doing counterfactual history. And that is to, to pick the plausible counterfactual. And, and, and that means that you can't, or at least it's not worth, in my view, asking counterfactual questions that have no real plausibility or had no plausibility to contemporaries. Mm. So we did a one assassination counterfactual in the book, and that was, that was Kennedy. Mm. And Dan Coons wrote a What If Kennedy Had Not Been an Assassinated chapter. And that's a legitimate counterfactual, as is the Lincoln one, because, of course, it was a surprise to people when he was assassinated, and most people were assuming that he was uh, going to, to live and, and indeed run for uh, re-election. I, I make it a clear and explicit rule in the introduction that you can only, as an historian, consider counterfactuals that contemporaries themselves considered. Mm. Uh, and, and that's kind of necessary because methodologically... You need some evidence to build your counterfactual. You need to know what contemporaries thought would happen uh, if Kennedy had, had served a second term, and you need to have some sense of what contemporaries thought the war would be like if Britain didn't intervene. Uh, so I think it's a good rule. I mean, you can do counterfactuals like, well, what if they hadn't had any railways in the United States? I first came to counterfactual history as an economic historian because there were these counterfactual essays uh, that that were being done by economic historians trying to calculate what contribution to GDP railroads made, uh, to give just one example. And I remember plowing through this stuff as an undergraduate thinking, how useful is this? I mean, Mm. do we really need to imagine an America without railroads? Wasn't something that contemporaries spent a lot of time thinking about. So I prefer the ones that had a real significance to contemporaries. Because in the, in the end, the historians really trying to reconstitute past thought. and that, That's really what we do. And for me, the most important thing to convey to students and to readers is that what happened was not the high probability scenario always. Quite often, what happened was not something that people attached high probability to ex ante. They were expecting other outcomes. But because we know what happened, we have a tendency to dismiss those other scenarios that were very alive to contemporaries. I mean, contemporaries did not know in July of 1914 that Britain was going to enter a continental war and turn it into a world war. And they didn't know, to take another example in 1941, uh, that the Axis powers would lose World War II. It's that uncertainty about the future that often gets lost in mediocre historical writing. Whereas I am, I've am, i always been alive to it. I've always felt that one needs to give the reader a sense of the uncertainty of the human condition at any point in time. We don't know the future. We're going to talk a bit about impending political events, but nobody knows what's actually going to happen in, uh, on November the 3rd. And so the counterfactuals are alive today. What would a second Trump term look like? What does a Biden presidency looked like. These are these are scenarios we have to attach relatively high probabilities to. And then there are these other scenarios. What if the whole thing goes completely to hell because there's no clear result and the whole country descends into some kind of chaos? That, that too is, is a non-zero probability, though I think it's still quite low. But in future, we'll know what happened. And then people will write history. They'll be strongly inclined to write it as if that outcome was the likely one but often it isn't.
0: I think uh, I, the, I discovered your virtual history collection a few years ago when I was a philosophy undergrad at Columbia. And I thought approaching it from the standpoint of moral philosophy and how we judge events as you know, net good or net harm, I, I think there's a rich point of contact between that and the idea of counterfactual histories because Whenever we say some event was bad, presumably we're comparing it to a counterfactual where some moral actor acted differently, but in, in a plausible way. Yet we're never tempted to actually flesh out in detail what would have happened in the you know, medium or long run had that implied alternate timeline sort of happened, so we're all, we're always relying on the ability to think counterfactually without actually fleshing it out, and I think that's I, I think for that reason alone, it's really useful to think about counterfactual histories. You know, for, for instance, to think if you are deciding between Biden and Trump now, not just to predict what's what the two alternate timelines from the the coming four years would be, but to actually Think in detail about what the past four years would have looked like uh, with Hillary, and that that's something that people aren't in the habit of doing right if trump if Trump does something bad, we aren't in, in the habit of thinking what would Hillary have said in that exact moment, and what would the consequences have been, even if it wouldn't change your judgment. I think it's a useful exercise in rather than you know to to, to always make sure that you're not Comparing reality to an imagined utopia and finding reality to be um, wanting, but comparing you know this
1: timeline to a to a plausible different timeline I think it's more than just useful actually it's the only intellectually rigorous way to proceed I for example wrote a history of the British Empire uh, back in around two thousand two three and One of the arguments I made in that book was that the empire, that particular empire, had many faults. And the book details some of its more egregious uh, sins of omission and commission. But in order to make a judgment about whether an historical phenomenon like an empire is a net good or net bad thing, you do need to ask what the alternatives were. And uh, those people who a delight in striking poses of moral indignation about imperialism, and there are many these days, often omit to ask what the alternatives were. Uh, What was the alternative uh, form of government that India would have had uh, in the 19th century, for example? Uh, What would have happened if another European empire, uh, not the British empire, had been dominant In the 19th century. The British Empire had of course been a major uh, proponent of and exponent of slavery in the 18th century. But in the 19th century, there was an enormous moral uh, revulsion against slavery and the Royal Navy was used to uh, essentially stamp out the slave trade. That almost certainly wouldn't have happened if, let us say, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese empires had remained dominant in the atlantic uh, region. So I I think that illustrates the point. If you're going to condemn something, if you want to make moral judgments about the past, then it's not good enough to say implicitly everything would have been milk and honey if only those horrible Brits had stayed at home. That's actually not plausible. India would not have been India today, it wouldn't have been united. Uh, had it not been for British rule, it wouldn't have had the infrastructure that was built. Uh, we can see that by looking at other comparable economies that weren't run out of London. The other way I, I've come across this in, in more recent times is writing about the life of Henry Kissinger. Enormous numbers of books have been written condemning this or that aspect of US foreign policy uh, in the 1970s. But I'm very struck by how seldom the authors have explicitly asked what would have happened had things been done differently. Uh, how would it have been if the United States had simply abandoned South Vietnam right away uh, in 1969? Would that necessarily have produced uh, a better outcome? The, the assumption is just generally made, uh, and, and it's not even explicit, that, that this would all have, been, all have been better. So I, I think as an historian, one has to be explicit about the counterfactual. Otherwise, the value judgment is a kind of hollow one. It's based on, as you said, some kind of imaginary utopia, which there's very little reason to believe would have uh, come into being had things things gone differently.
0: Yeah. So with that in mind, I, I might ask you some virtual history questions in this podcast about contemporary politics. Uh, so let's start with the coronavirus pandemic, which I think you were among the people warning about this very early, I think as early as January, right? Um, when when most people, you know, it wasn't even in their minds. Um, I'm very curious to, to know how you think the United States would have weathered this pandemic differently if we had a different president. If we had, you know, either a Hillary Clinton or some other sort of more normal, for lack of a better word, Republican like Mitt Romney. Like, how how different do you think the death count would be? Because I I think there are a, a range of opinions on this. Some people seem to think that. But for Trump, we would be doing, you know, as good as South Korea and Singapore. And other people seem to think, you know, Trump has, you know, Trump is the only reason we're doing as as OK as as we are.
1: So where do you stand on that? Well, I've read numerous articles implying or stating explicitly that if only Trump hadn't been president, uh, things would have been much, much better. And I think this is a mistake. Uh, James Fallows made this argument in The Atlantic, for example, uh, recently. And James Fallows is a very distinguished journalist. Uh, but he seemed to me to take it entirely on trust from his sources uh, in CDC or uh, Centers for Disease Control or the Department of Health and Human Services that, um, that it was all Trump's fault. That things went badly. And he seemed to take it on trust from the Obama people he spoke to that, of course, they would have handled it much better if it had happened to them. There's actually very little evidence to support those claims. Firstly, it's very clear that the failure that produced bad outcomes in terms of excess mortality in a number of countries, including the United States, the UK as well, Spain, Italy, Belgium, uh, those countries actually had higher excess mortality than the U.S. They did even worse. But those failures were not really and can't really be attributed to the men or women at the top. They were failures of the public health bureaucracy. And if one actually bothers to do some serious research rather than just talking to self-interested uh, people who have every reason to lay the blame on Trump... What becomes clear is that there was a terrific failure at CDC, particularly with respect to testing. Can't really see how that was Trump's fault. The intelligence people seem to have done as good a job as they might have of saying there's a problem in Wuhan, we should be worried about this. But the people whose job it was, like uh, the Assistant Secretary for Pandemic Preparedness, um, were completely missing in action. And I think that the real history, when it comes to be written, will show a tremendous failure of the administrative state, which Trump did nothing to prevent. Uh, Perhaps at the margin, he made things even worse worse with some of his interventions. But it can't really be claimed that it was all down to him. Actually, in January, Trump had a reasonably good impulse, which was to try to stop passengers from China coming to the United States. He was widely criticised in the liberal media for the travel ban. Uh, But actually, the only thing wrong with that move was it was too late. It was about two, maybe three weeks too late to really be effective. And it wasn't comprehensive enough because people with green cards and US passports were exempted. But his instincts were not that bad. Whereas, actually, the people whose job it was to be ready for a pandemic completely failed. And actually, CDC made matters worse by limiting the number of tests that could be done rather than ramping it up. Now, we know what you should have done because countries did it. South Korea did it. Taiwan did it. A bunch of European countries did reasonably well, too. You had to very quickly, even before the Chinese confirmed that there was serious human-to-human spread, start testing people, uh, and then you had to do contact tracing once you found people who were infected. And those things were done successfully in some countries... Uh, But they were not done successfully in the U.S. or the U.K. or in Italy. Uh, And indeed, a lot of things were done very wrong. One reason that there was very high excess mortality in uh, the state where you live, New York, um, as uh, in the U.K., as in multiple European countries, was that no effort was made to prevent the virus from getting into elderly care homes. And that explains between a third and a half of the excess mortality. Is it the president's job to make sure that people in elderly care homes in New York State are not vulnerable to a new uh, coronavirus? No, that's not the president's job. So that's the first reason that I'm skeptical. A lot of the people briefing up journalists like Fallows are actually from inside uh, DHHS and from CDC. Yeah, they really would love Trump to carry the can for this. But the reality is, this was a failure of the public health bureaucracy. As for the Obama administration, um, It didn't exactly stop swine flu from uh, spreading uh, throughout the country. And as for its success in dealing with another epidemic, the opioid epidemic, it was a complete failure. Actually, more people died of opioid uh, overdoses in the Obama presidency than have died from COVID-19. And it happened every year throughout his presidency, and each year more people died. So I'm very sceptical about the claim that... uh, If COVID-19 had come along, the Obama presidency would have dealt with it brilliantly. There's no evidence to suggest that. As for the counterfactual question, I hope I've kind of answered it. I think if Hillary Clinton had been president, she wouldn't have been doing uh, uh, press conferences in which she extolled the virtues of hydroxychloroquine. She wouldn't have done any of the really foolish things that Trump did the claims to understand it, the claims that you could reopen by Easter. I don't think Hillary Clinton would have done any of that as president. But would the public health bureaucracy have performed better? I find that really dubious as a claim. Uh, I suspect, actually, that the outcome would have been very similar because what killed people was not really presidential action. What killed people was a fundamental failure to understand the nature of a new coronavirus, fundamental failure to learn the lessons of SARS and MERS. And some countries learned those lessons. It's just that our public health bureaucracy didn't.
0: Mm. So I want to talk about another another issue that I think many people are probably, uh, especially swing voters, are probably... What I mean to say is there, there's probably a lot of single-issue voters right now, and the single issue they they care about is... Violence, the response to rioting, Black Lives Matter, uh, the wider, you know, phenomenon of woke anti-racism and intersectionality. This ideology that seems to be spreading like wildfire and appears to people to be the only ethical response to seeing a black person get killed by a cop. Um, and, you know, this has been the big story of the summer. And I have been thinking a lot recently about whether this problem gets worse under four more years of Trump or four more four years of Biden, because on the one hand, I think Trump is as much of a gift to Black Lives Matter as Black Lives Matter is to Trump. Uh, by which I mean, you know, Trump, he just always chooses to say the more inflammatory thing, to tweet the thing that is more likely to piss off the left, where a different person would just use more polite language or would wouldn't hit send on the impulsive tweet. And that all adds fuel to the fire of of woke anti-racism that exists right now. Trump has this strange way of seeming much worse than he is because he he will just you know he, he'll say when the looting know char- when the looting starts the shooting starts which on its face seems at least you know some interpretations of it, it just that that's a crazily um, it's going too far in the direction of law and order but at the same time his actual policies on criminal justice have been. You know, almost straight out of the new Jim Crow in terms of you know commuting sentences for federal prisoners and pardoning people and whatnot. So, you know, what he says almost invariably ends up being much worse than than what he does, which provides fuel to the left. On the other hand, Biden seems like, you know, he clearly he is not woke. Nobody thinks that Biden wants to abolish the police. He has a track record of being a moderate on all of these issues. But he's he he's also pretty unwilling to stand up at the end of the day against the woke elements of the Democratic Party. Like do, does anyone really think that he'll be able to completely reject the creeping illiberalism of the left at the end of the day? You know, it it he you know, he's made he said some good things on this point. You know, he, he's condemned the violence, but he I'm not sure he's done it persuasively or emotionally enough to persuade swing voters that he really means it when he says he's against all this stuff. So I, how do you see that playing out on these two timelines over the next four years?
1: Well, Coleman, let me first say that I've, I've learned more from you on, on the issue of, of, of race and politics in America than you'll ever learn from me. And I, uh, I want to make that caveat uh, very clear. Uh, when uh, in the aftermath of uh, the killing of George Floyd, the country seemed to erupt into protest. Uh, you were one of the people I called uh, to help me understand what was happening. I'm just a simple immigrant from the west of Scotland, who's uh, who's never really going to understand these things in the way that somebody born uh, African American is going to understand them. And uh, so, I I want to make it very clear that this is not this is not something I can massively illuminate at its core. Um, on the other hand, I'm I'm in a, a mixed race marriage. I have two. Uh, Sons, Ayan and I have two sons, little boys, who are going to be seen by many people as black. Um, uh, So race is part of our lives. It's part of our lives, whether we like it or not, as long as we live in the United States. So I have to think about these things and I have to understand them. First of all, I think there are not many single-issue voters in America today. Mm. I think what is going on right now is that uh, three issues are uh, competing for the voters' attention. Uh, the first is obviously the pandemic. Uh, the second is the economy, and the third is this issue of law and order and the broader question of, uh, of of woke ideology, if you care to to use that that term. And I think ultimately Trump's fate depends on being able to make that third issue the most important issue, but he's not there yet. And uh, at this point, I think uh, the the sheer mess that the pandemic has made, the difficulty of getting a really sustained recovery under the circumstances of the last few months when we've had second waves in multiple states, all of these things make it very difficult for Trump to get reelected. And his position relative to to Joe Biden looks significantly worse uh, than his position this time four years ago relative to Hillary Clinton, especially in some key states like Florida, for example. So from my vantage point, he needs the, the left to keep uh, rioting. And he needs the left to keep making unreasonable public statements. He needs material to go not only to Fox News, but also to Facebook conservative groups, to give enough impetus to his campaign to bring particularly elderly voters back to his side, because the biggest problem he faces at the moment, as far as I can see from the polling, is that because COVID-19 disproportionately kills elderly people, elderly people are very unhappy about the way it's been handled. They are conservative ideologically, and yet on the issue of pandemic uh, uh, response, they've ended up actually lining up with younger Americans. Uh, The people who are kind of open the economy enough for the pandemic are the middle-aged Americans. It's very hard for me to see that Trump can, can make it if the elderly stay where they are. So the culture war, to use another shorthand, is really key for him. And that's why I think you're right when you say that he goes out of his way to fan the flames. And he's been doing this throughout his uh, political career. Uh, think of the fanning of the flames that went on in 2017 after the events in Charlottesville. Trump understands that there is a way of stoking the culture war so that the left will be uh, so deranged as to supply him with fresh evidence that he alone can protect middle America from the left. And the left is playing into his hands in ways that led me to sort of put out a series of tweets over the weekend, you know, how to reelect Donald Trump, number one. And I just went through a succession of of really absurd episodes uh, that, that illustrate the, the problem. Now, if Trump is reelected, which I think is getting close to being a 50% probability scenario, and particularly if it's close, and especially if it's contested and we don't get a result until some days, if not weeks after the, the election, I worry very much that the cities will burn and the, the protests will be on an even larger scale than they, they were in, in, in June. And, and that, of course, will create a very dangerous situation because it will seem to validate uh, Trump's uh, uh, re-election in the eyes of those people who voted for it. it, will validate his narrative. And it would encourage, I think, him and others to 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 take steps that that might ultimately be harmful to the stability of our democracy. On the other hand, uh, let's think through the scenario. If Joe Biden wins, there is a sense in which Trump may be right uh, in when in his acceptance speech when he said uh, that he would be a Trojan horse, that Joe Biden would be a Trojan horse for the left. I know Joe Biden better than I know Donald Trump. Uh, clearly, Joe Biden is no socialist, and he's certainly not somebody who uh, in any way re- re- uh, relishes the spectacle of Portland burning. But the problem is that Joe Biden is an old man who has essentially been selected as the least innocuous, most electable candidate of a party that now has a very radical left wing of democratic socialists within its uh, its body. And I don 't see really that um, a Biden Harris administration will do anything to check the continued spread of an intolerant, illiberal ideology uh, from the universities of the United States into every corporation into every media organization. I think all of that will continue so it, it it's hard to be enthused by either scenario you know either we're in a sort of Twitter civil war a kind of facebook based conflagration, or we end up with just more of that insidious spread uh, of intersectionality uh grievance studies, and all the rest of it that i 've seen slowly erode the quality of academic uh, life in the United States for a decade or more that that's that 's what 's so depressing about this election trump isn 't really a solution to any of that uh, of those problems actually as you rightly say, there's a sort of interdependence between Trump and and the woke left. Uh, He needs Antifa to set Portland on fire on a nightly basis. And they kind of need him to be inflammatory to justify their antics.
0: Yeah, like you, I'm very worried about the prospect of the election being narrowly won and being contested. And I'm not sure which one worries me more: if if Trump wins by a hair, or if Biden wins by a hair. I know that if Trump wins by a hair, predictably, I'm going to see a thousand and one op-eds in the New York Times about how the suppression of the black vote and you know was the the reason that Trump stole the election. And I can also guarantee that the claims are going to be totally untethered from reality and fact-checking because that's, you know, I think just in these institutions, no one wants to be the person that fact-checks the claim that these, you know, black voters couldn't vote because there was an ID requirement. No one wants to be that guy at the New York Times. And that's what happened when uh, Brian Kemp beat... Stacey Abrams um, for the governor in Georgia. I, I think it's true to say that she still hasn't really conceded that she lost fair and square, but you know she lost by I think over fifty thousand votes, and you know one of the big charges, you know, cited as evidence that it wasn't fair was that voters were purged from the voter rolls. But the law that required that was created by a a democratic legislature under a democratic governor. So it was like these basic, basic, sort of the first questions you would ask if you asked a smart 15-year-old to fact check your narrative weren't asked, much less answered in this case. And there's still people walking around thinking, Brian Kemp certainly stole that election from Stacey Abrams. So that whole machinery of, of um, you know, almost conspiratorial, you know, uh, charges against the political right is, is going to be cranked up to 100, no matter how, how much, really, Trump wins by, if, if he does win. And I have to imagine that that's just going to be. A horrible situation and, and a provocation to to violence, but I think strangely, the one thing that might save us is the weather. You know people actually just don't riot in the in the winter, at least from what I can tell in American history you know there, it's it's always in the summer it's cold, and people just want to stay indoors or they can only handle being outdoors for a certain amount of time but it's I think it's worrying that i'm putting my faith in in just the cold to, to keep them, you know, cities from, from
1: burning. I lived in the Northeast for, for many years, a dozen years, and can be quite mild in early November. doesn't really get properly cold uh, by Scottish standards till January. I, th- mm. I think um, you're right that both sides will, will claim that they were robbed and that the outcome was rigged. Both sides have their narratives in place Uh, to delegitimize uh, the result if they lose. On the Republican side, it's going to be that postal voting uh, was somehow crooked, and you've already sketched the kind of narrative that there will be if Trump uh, wins or is declared the winner by the Supreme Court. I do think that scenario in which we have a version of 2000 and the Supreme Court uh, essentially stops recounts and more one or more states, would be calculated to produce a great eruption, even if it's a bit chillier than it was in July. I think the, the alternative scenario in which uh, Trump is declared the loser by a narrow margin probably will have much less uh, disruptive consequences. I mean, my sense is that the Trump base is not going to take up arms though they possess many, if he narrowly loses. Uh, I actually think that's a much less likely scenario than that we have riots if Trump narrowly wins. I think the Trump base has already so um, imbibed conspiracy theories uh, about you name it, including a vaccine against COVID-19, they will essentially follow their leader into a a wilderness of social media, uh, cable TV disgruntlement, but I don't actually think there'll be much violence. Yeah. So I I do I do suspect that the problem in this scenario of the narrow Biden win is that the right just goes off to QAnon and Facebook groups, uh, vacates the scene. And at that point, there's really nothing to stop the continued... Uh, encroachment of the so-called progressive left on every institution that's up for grabs. Ultimately, at the heart of Trumpism, the, the part of Trumpism that was a kind of legitimate populism four years ago was an observation about the administrative state, uh, the social elite, uh, Wall Street, Hollywood, an observation that that those institutions were not only Ignorant of middle America, indifferent to middle America, but culturally we're completely divorced from it. And I think a Biden Harris presidency will just be a continuation of the Obama years, only with the operatives taking a kind of no more Mr. Nice Guy attitude. Uh, that's to say, they'll get rid of the filibuster if they possibly can, and they will embark on the most ambitious program of public spending. Perhaps in all of American history, it'll be bigger than the New Deal and bigger than the Great Society. And they'll do all this with the sense that uh, there's nothing to stop them now. And in a way, they'll be right, because the Trumpists will have gone off to conspiracy land, and the remnants of the Republican Party will have very little credibility when they make fiscally orthodox arguments. And the whole thing seems to me to be a great economic train crash waiting to happen. I mean, the fiscal situation is already completely out of control. The Fed has just essentially said, ah, inflation target, we'll relax that. And and I feel as if the whole uh, stage is set to reenact some version of the 1970s. And it'll all turn out to be the Carter presidency uh, and and all the kind of ambitions that currently I think, um, are harbored by uh, the people who expect to be in government if Biden wins will we'll kind of founder on the sheer economic impossibility of what they're trying to do. Uh, to say nothing of the foreign policy crisis that will blow up very quickly between the US and China after this election, whoever is president. And all of this is going to kind of derail, uh, de- derail the Biden-Harris presidency economically and geopolitically in ways that will come come to dominate, I suspect, news coverage. Even in that scenario, though, I think the problem that you alluded to earlier, whereby a fundamentally illiberal ideology that wants to restructure institutions on the basis of a kind of hierarchy of historical grievance, that will... That process will continue. Nothing will be able to stop it. And it's already so far advanced in universities that nothing could possibly reverse it. But I think what will happen is that it will carry on so that media organizations uh, and corporations behave in ever more craven ways under the pressure of uh, a radicalized, a revolutionary uh, group of people whose, whose goal would appear to be fundamentally at odds with the first principles of a free society, namely free thought and free speech.
0: Yeah, Wesley Yang calls it the su- successor ideology, which I think is the, the best name I've yet heard for it because it doesn't have any of the baggage or negative connotations of woke or social justice, but it indicates that what this is at bottom is the thing that comes after liberalism. and. Um, but I want to you mentioned foreign policy in China. I want to get to that in a moment. But back to what you said about what's likely to happen if Trump gets defeated. It occurs to me that that yeah, I think you're right, because. You know, I think what I was worried about when I voted against Trump in 2016 um, and I think what a lot of people were worried about was that Trump was going to be a, a wannabe fascist president. You know, I, I heard the things he was saying about border and potential Muslim registries and so on and so forth. And there, what I heard was someone who just wanted to be, you know, the 2016's version of Hitler. And I think what I was wrong about was that Trump is, is not an ideologue in any sense. He, he's not a, I think what Kevin Williamson said about him, uh, not really a defense, but the thing that se- separates Trump from an actual racist is that a racist has a kind of irrational loyalty to a particular subset of mankind but Trump is actually incapable of that kind of loyalty. He's he's so self-concerned and narcissistic and opportunistic that he'll he'll just as easily call Pat Buchanan an anti-semite as he will wink to anti-semites, you know, if it if it serves him. So there's no there's no ideological fascist or racist core to him. He's just so, so what that makes me think is that if he loses, he's not gonna lead some, you know, crusade to, or, or some, you know, some kind of. He's not gonna tell his followers to storm Washington and perpetrate a coup. He's gonna move on to the next opportunity for aggrandizing himself with you know, wealth and attention, and that will probably take a nonviolent form because he doesn't, he doesn't actually want to get caught up in anything, right? He just wants, you know, the, whatever, the next thing, whatever his next conquest is that makes him the center of attention.
1: Yeah, I was very skeptical of the argument in 2015-16 that Trump was uh, plotting American tyranny and that he was a Hitler or Mussolini-like figure. Uh, my old friend Andrew Sullivan made that argument. Uh, I think it's wrong. I think it's based on a category error. Uh, It's based on a kind of slightly uh, slapdash analogy with the Weimar Republic, which doesn't work at all. I mean, I studied the Weimar Republic for my PhD. This is not the Weimar Republic. Apart from anything else, the two parties are still intact. It's not as if the military would side with Trump if he wanted to overthrow the Constitution. I think that can be completely ruled out. In the Weimar Republic, the universities were full of proto-Nazis. The universities today are entirely on the left. In fact, it's hard to think of any established institution that would, in fact, side with Trump if there were to be some kind of assault in the Constitution. In any case, Trump never was interested in that. As I tried to argue in 2016, he's a classic populist from the late 19th century who wants tariffs and he wants to... uh, Whip up nativist sentiment against illegal immigrants, restrict immigration of all kinds, have a go at the, the cultural and financial elite. It's a, an absolutely classic populist playbook, even this sort of weak money element. Um, you know, uh, the populists were great haters on the gold standard. Well, you know, nobody's done more uh, and tried harder to weaken the dollar than Donald Trump. And uh, so I think he was, it was always a category error to think he's a fascist. I mean, fascism isn't just. It's just not like this. Fascism is guys in uniforms. Uh, the the right today doesn't even do organized violence that well. I'm always struck by how how unWeimar the street violence is. It's kind of shambolic uh, compared with what you would have seen in 1920s or early 30s Germany. So I think this whole idea that we were on the brink of 1933 was tremendously bad history. Um, My friend at Yale, Tim Snyder, wrote books to this effect. Well, you know, if you know a lot about interwar Europe, after a while, everything starts to look like interwar Europe. Mm. The truth is that Trump is just straight out of the 19th century populist playbook. He's a very American figure. He's a snake oil salesman. And there always is more snake oil to be sold. And in many ways, that is a more attractive activity to him than, than the violence. He's not been a violent president. He's avoided war. He doesn't really like the idea of... Uh, of anything more than a trade war, so I find these scenarios today, as I found them four years ago, implausible. I also sense that his supporters, when you come down to it, are not really about to uh, march on Rome or on Washington, for that matter. Uh, they they will, in fact, I, I suspect, say to themselves, "Well, you know, we had a we had a go. We we tried. We had a we had our shot. We had our four years." And it didn't kind of work out. Didn't work out. And, uh, and off they'll go, as I said, to their Facebook groups. And, uh, and there'll be a wonderful conspiracy theory about the election to console them. But I just don't see. I've never seen this as a threat to the Constitution. Apart from anything else, Coleman, the Constitution was designed for precisely the eventuality that a charlatan would become president. I mean, people like Hamilton thought about this because they'd studied a lot of history and they knew the biggest threat to a republic is always the tyrant who has the mob on his side. So they designed the constitution so that it'd be really difficult to subvert. Trump has sort of got the impulse to subvert the rule of law. That's obvious from the Mueller report. But his people, they didn't really let him do it. In fact, to me, the striking feature, this is a Uh, Jack Goldsmith point, is the weakness of the Trump presidency. That will be the verdict of history. How little he was able to achieve, how often the courts struck down what he wanted to do, how easily he was contained by the separation of powers. I mean, the midterms went against him. I just ask the people like Andrew and others who've made this argument to give me one example of a successful subversion of the Constitution that has happened in the last four years. And they can't, because it just isn't, really what this is about. I think there's been a great catharsis for middle America. I said this uh, when Sam Harris and I talked earlier this year, And, and here's another counterfactual. I said, the problem here that nobody wants to quite accept is how important this catharsis was for middle America. And if they hadn't had it, if Hillary Clinton had won four years ago, then I think the mood would have been a good deal uglier. Uh, but if they've had four years and it's ended in, let's face it, uh, the shit show of COVID-19 and the economy in a whole, I think the people who voted for Trump and who will vote for him again, because the base is extremely loyal, will shrug their shoulders and say, this just proves how good the conspiracy against us is. Mm-hmm. And they'll be in small town America watching Tucker Carlson, feeling pissed. But they're not going to march on Washington. And nor is Trump going to kind of barricade himself inside the White House, like, you know, the final scenes of Scarface. This is all this is all part of the sort of Rachel Maddow fantasy world.
0: Hmm. So let's talk about foreign policy in China. You have argued that we are in the midst of the Second Cold War, uh, whether or not we know it. Can you make the case for that to a skeptic?
1: Well, the first Cold War wasn't immediately obvious. It took Winston Churchill to point it out to Americans uh, in a famous speech in Fulton, Missouri. And World, uh, Cold War II has started in the same quiet way. The counterpart that you thought was kind of your ally, Soviet Union in the late 40s, China, now turns out not to be. Turns out, in fact, to be ideologically deeply hostile to you. Turns out, in fact, to have a uh, an expansionist uh, program. And it takes a while to recognize that. Back in 2007, I I wrote a piece with Moritz Schulerich about Chimerica. We argued that the U.S. and China had become economically almost interdependent. And this symbiotic relationship was was fundamentally unstable. And I think we were right about that. But there's still a big part of America that hasn't quite let go of Chimerica, especially Wall Street, by the way. And I, I think even in Silicon Valley, there are still a kind of a lot of Chimericans around. But in truth, uh, Chimerica stopped working for middle America years ago in the sense that manufacturing jobs were being hollowed out by, by China. The, the whole Chimerican era of globalization was fundamentally far more beneficial to China than to to ordinary Americans. And the surprising thing to me has been how long it took Americans to react against this. I was expecting protectionism to be an issue in American politics in 2004, Uh, But it took Trump finally to break the free trade consensus and say, we need to do something about this. What's fascinating in the last two years has been that what began as a trade war very quickly metamorphosed into something more like a Cold War. Trump himself really believes that tariffs work. He has a completely uh, idiosyncratic view of economics that almost no economist shares. But the trade war has become a, a side issue now. The tech war is far more important. And I think if you look back on Cold War I and ask what was it in essence, it was partly a technological war. It was the fact that the United States had the atomic bomb at the outset and the Soviets had to steal the technology to to replicate it. And they then engaged in a technological race that ran, ran right through to the 70s, at which point the Soviets really began to fall behind. Ultimately, they couldn't do computers and that was that. Now, that tech war dimension is fully and clearly in place today, the US and China are in a tech war over semiconductors, they're in a tech war over 5G, they're in a tech war over AI, they're in a tech war over quantum computers, you name it. So that's clear enough. Cold War one was also ideological. And it's gradually sinking in, it's gradually dawning on Americans that actually Xi Jinping... Uh, uh, is, is not only president of China, but he is actually leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And he does, in fact, subscribe to a version of Marxism Leninism. And that means that there is an ideological contest here. It was not the, the Americans who declared this. It was Xi when he said that Western ideas of the rule of law should be essentially prohibited in Chinese uh, universities. It's China that's launched the ideological part of this Cold War. And then there's just the standard geopolitics of Cold War. As in, as in the first Cold War, there are a bunch of places in play. Uh, it was Eastern Europe uh, and uh, Korea and uh, parts of Southeast Asia and parts of Latin America. Back then, this time around, the areas that really are in play are closer to China. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Taiwan, the South China Sea, And the fundamental question is can the United States remain preeminent in what Americans now call the Indo Pacific region when China has become more or less, but not quite, an economic equal? So, in all dimensions, I think we have a Cold War. Uh, It's just that we don't quite want to admit it. And, And certainly Joe Biden doesn't want to. China was barely mentioned at the Democratic Virtual Convention. And I think that's unfortunate because it's probably the problem that will be most intractable should he become president.
0: So how would you rate Trump's performance on the China issue in the last four years?
1: I think he has one and only one claim to a place in the history books. and That is that he changed the direction of American strategy and American thinking on this issue. When Trump first said that he was going to put tariffs on Chinese goods at the beginning of his campaign in 2015. He was kind of treated as a maverick. Arianna Huffington said she would cover the campaign in the entertainment section of the Huffington Post. Mm. By 2018, Trump essentially had shifted uh, attitudes on this issue so much that a bipartisan consensus had emerged that there was a problem called China that the United States had to deal with. And even if you didn't quite like the way he was going about it, you didn't really argue seriously uh, that we could carry on with the strategy that previously had been adopted of strategic patience, i.e. letting China gradually take over and overtake the United States. So I think what Trump did was rather remarkable in that he fundamentally altered strategy in a way that was at odds with consensus in almost every way and then led not only the public, but the elites in the same direction, to the point that anti-China is about the only bipartisan issue in the United States today. The recent Pew polling shows there's been a massive move in the direction of an unfavorable view of China amongst both Democrats and Republicans. And this, I think, is Trump's significance historically, because if that hadn't happened, then I think China's rise to, to dominance was essentially an unstoppable force, uh, and I think the Obama administration, in its second term, had essentially resigned itself to that. It wasn't just that Obama jettisoned American exceptionalism; he and Susan Rice basically they basically jettisoned the idea of American primacy. Hence, we're not the global policeman, and hence. Uh, an essential admission that the pivot to Asia couldn't work and China couldn't really be contained. So Trump has, I think, made this important contribution that he changed the, not only the strategy, but the view. And I think that was necessary because I actually think, as far as those of us uh, who care about individual freedoms are concerned, the biggest threat to individual freedom in the world today is not a bunch of woke uh, poseurs in the United States, it's the Communist Party of China. Uh, because they have uh, the resources uh, and the vision to create a surveillance state far more comprehensive than anything George Orwell imagined in 1984 and export it to all kinds of other countries in their so-called Belt and Road Initiative. So I think this is a huge issue. I think it's still underestimated, even by people whose minds have been changed by Trump, that that is his historical significance, because people tend to focus on epiphenomena rather than on the thing that really matters. And the thing that really matters is that we don't want a world to be dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. I think that would be a very disagreeable world to inhabit.
0: Yeah, you had one line in one of your recent columns that was something like, one-fifth of the world lives in a condition of just hostility to liberal principles and democracy. And just framing it as one-fifth of the world rather than China was jarring to me um and i think it's kind of a useful way to think about it like this is this is a huge chunk of the globe and we could just sleepwalk into a scenario where you know china is the next
1: global empire that is a scenario that chinese intellectuals discuss with increasing openness there's no question in my mind and this has been my view for some years that Xi Jinping has a a Weltpolitik, a vision of China's global uh, power that is tantamount to empire. The fact is that it's not just a fifth of humanity that can end up under this Chinese panopticon. It could be many other countries too, because China's exporting its facial recognition technology, surveillance technology, drone technology to countries all over the world. And I think this is a much more profound threat than than people in the West yet realize. We kind of think it, it's a Hong Kong problem, but it's not just a problem for Hong Kong. Uh, it's a problem uh, certainly in the immediate future for Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is a remarkable place, de facto uh Independence, uh, one of the most successful democracies in Asia. Tremendous advertisement that Chinese people can make democracy work, but but it is actually on Xi Jinping's to-do list before he uh, finally relinquishes power in China to bring Taiwan back into the fold of the PRC and end democracy and end individual freedom uh, in that country, and it it will go from there. I say this as somebody who spent many years. Uh, working in China as a visiting professor at Tsinghua, it has pained me to watch the possibilities of liberalism be snuffed out as they have been in recent years. Uh, but ultimately, you can only draw one conclusion from the direction that China's leadership is is going in. And, and that is that we are in, in Cold War II, whether we like it or not. China started it. And like the original Cold War, it is a It is a fundamental threat to individual liberty and not just in China. You know, it seems to me whatever your issue, whether you think of yourself as a conservative or a liberal, you should be deeply concerned that Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang have been herded into concentration camps and are being subjected to what amounts to genocidal policies uh, designed to limit, uh, reduce... uh, Uh, births in that population, to to give just one example. If you are somebody who thinks the most important thing we should focus on is climate change, then it can't have escaped your notice, or it shouldn't have, that somewhere around 60% of all the increase in CO2 emissions since Greta Thunberg was born are due to China, and that China this year has built yet more coal-burning power stations. It doesn't matter if the Chinese all drive Teslas. If they power the Teslas, if they charge the batteries from electricity generated by burning coal, we have not saved the planet uh, with all due respect to Elon Musk. I don't care what your issue is. You should be concerned about the, the, the threat, the challenge of China. And, and Donald Trump was there before you. He was the first the first politician who was willing to to challenge the the chimera consensus and say we have to do something about this, and he was right about that.
0: So, how much in the uh, how much of the uh, degradation of the relationship between China and America is the result of Xi Jinping? It, which is to say, in the spirit of counterfactual history, if uh, if if the previous leader of the CCP had had you know, was still the leader today, how how different would things be?
1: Well, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao certainly had a different approach, which was far closer in its spirit to the Deng Xiaoping approach, which was let's focus on the economy and let's not get into any kind of uh, political muscle flexing. But I I think the right counterfactual to ask is not that. Uh, There's a reason Xi Jinping came to power when he did. A very eminent uh, Chinese Communist Party member and former minister said to me, just a few years ago, what you have to understand, this was at the end of a long conversation, what you have to understand, he said, is that Xi Jinping saved the party, he saved the army, and he saved the state. And I asked a friend who was there in the room with me, a Chinese uh, academic, to explain why this had been said and with such emphasis vehemence, really. And he said, he was saying to you that, that the party was in deep crisis when Xi Jinping came to power, far, far more crisis than you and the West realized, which I think is right. I mean, I think Western media coverage of the transition of power, of the Bo Lai episode was greatly underestimating the extent of the crisis at the top of the Chinese Communist Party the loss of legitimacy because of corruption. There was a strong sense within the Chinese elite that things were falling apart, that the inequalities, the corruption, and all of that was ultimately going to lead to the end of the dynasty. And this, this is a great obsession amongst China's leaders that they're just another imperial dynasty and those things don't last forever. So I think the counterfactual is not, what if the Chinese had stayed nice um, and been content to play second fiddle? and being content to be the junior partners in Chimerica, I think the right counterfactual is what if that crisis had really blown up and there had been uh, that kind of disintegration, that breaking up that has occasionally characterized Chinese history where the centrifugal forces just become too powerful. I mean, it isn't exactly sort of intuitive that a fifth of humanity should live under one particular polity. It's really quite remarkable that that is the case. So I think what nearly happened was a major crisis of the system. I think that crisis is latent. I think COVID-19 could have been a Chernobyl moment, uh, which could have further undermined the legitimacy of the party, though it hasn't, as far as we can see, happened because they were able to get it under control. But I think it's a far more fragile edifice. And here's the point. It's precisely that fragility, that internal fragility, that explains the increasingly aggressive foreign policy the increasingly shrill tone. When I come to write about this, I want to make it very clear. It was China that began Cold War II. The United States was very slow in the uptake. And in some ways, Trump was a reaction to this increasingly combative Chinese strategy, combative in economic terms, but also combative in geopolitical and ideological term. And I think this is the only thing ultimate that will hold China together as the growth rate slows inexorably is going to slow because of demographic reasons. Even if there hadn't been a pandemic, the growth rate was going to come down. And increasingly, legitimacy therefore depends on this combination of a Maoist sense of, of, of collectivism, a repudiation of individualism, and a sense of being threatened from outside, which is really what I think Xi Jinping is using to try to keep his own party in power.